You're listening to Accounted For, the Canadian podcast that explores the intangibles of every career. I'm your host, Daniel Lee. Hello, hello. Happy Wednesday, everyone. Happy hump day. Uh, same as always, before I introduce today's guest, a constant reminder to go to iTunes and leave a nice five-star review for the podcast. It really helps get the podcast rise up in rankings. And if you leave a nice review, uh, I'll read it and I will give you a shout out in a future episode. So that's an incentive if you want a little shine of fame uh, in the audio world. So please go ahead and uh, leave a review and I I would really appreciate it. Uh, And I really appreciate your support. So today's podcast episode is with Natalie Festa, the co-founder and CEO of Borrow, a peer-to-peer clothing rental marketplace. Natalie is a fellow KPMG Audit alum, yay! (laughs) And so from there, uh, we talk about how she got a sabbatical to work as a managing director of a local fashion company in Tanzania, where she was also the roommate of Lucas Perlman, who came on as a guest on episode 11 of the podcast. And Lucas, if you're listening, thank you for referring me to Natalie. Um, it was an amazing conversation. So I can't thank you enough for that. And so to you, our listeners, we go through Natalie's journey uh, of really just listening to your gut um, getting and really getting off that hedonistic career treadmill that people I think get blinded by and just follow without any purpose and we also talk about how what it was really like for her to see the fashion supply chain in a developing world um, quitting KPMU with nothing but an idea of a company and the real entrepreneurial journey she had really embarked on in the last one and a half to two years we really go into like discussing ways of starting a company without VC funding and choosing to bootstrap and just the day-to-day realities of being a CEO and just the nature of all that and just what she actually goes through every day. So yeah, stay on and listen to my entire interview with Natalie. Hey folks, welcome back to Accounted For. Today on the podcast, I have Natalie Festa. Uh, she, Natalie is the co-founder and CEO of Burrow. Hey Natalie, thanks for coming on the podcast. Thanks Dan, excited to be here. Yeah, and so to begin with, um, for our audience member who may not be familiar with Burrow, can you describe the business? Please? Absolutely, thank you. So Burrow is a peer-to-peer marketplace for women to list clothing and rent clothing. So in its basic form, think of it like Airbnb for fashion. It's a centralized platform where people can list stuff, rent other people's stuff, and they trust the marketplace as the intermediary. So we focus on higher end or like good quality clothing, things that are worth it to be rented. So it wouldn't be like a $20 item that you would rent for $5. It's more items in the few hundred dollar range that you might rent for um we have different tiers 45 65 85 105 and that's for the weekend price but you can also choose to rent for 10 days a month whatever suits your needs um and so i'm the co-founder of that company we've been operating for about a year and a half okay nice and how many customers do you have on it currently we have 
a few hundred customers on the listing side. So we have about 650 products that you can choose from right now. And that comes from a few hundred listers. And then same thing on the demand side, a few hundred renters. Okay. Yeah. And it has completely skipped my memory if you've mentioned it, but is it specifically for women? Good question. Yeah, it, it is right now specifically for women. We do have visions to plant to expand into maternity children and men. However, it's good to be focused on one demographic to start. Yeah. And women is the most difficult because of fit. So if we can tackle that, we can tackle the other ones easily. Yeah, no, when I first discovered the company, I was telling my girlfriend about this address as a problem that you always face where when we go to parties, for example, you know, she comments, I don't want to wear the same dress twice because it's very obvious. Whereas exactly. if I wear the same suit three, four, ten times, nobody notices exactly. or cares. Yeah, which is, I don't know if it's a good or a bad thing when I invest in the suits, <laughs> but um, yeah, at that that I think it is a big problem that a lot of women face. You're absolutely right. It's a very prevalent issue, and part of the reason why the business was born was because my notice of this problem. Mm-hmm. So with myself, my friends, my ex-colleagues, everyone mm-hmm. kind of had the same sentiment. They didn't want to wear the same thing twice. And that's due to a lot of social pressures as well. People are posting on Instagram and don't want to have two posts with the same dress at different occasions, which is bizarre, but it's part of how society has evolved. Yes, the uh, visual economy. Exactly. Um, yeah, and so I actually want to dive a little, uh, maybe even take some time back into your childhood, you know. Okay. Where did you grow up? This is cool. This is walk down memory lane. Yeah. Yeah, I grew up in Vaughan, so a suburb okay. of Toronto. Yeah. I grew up in an Italian neighborhood, Woodbridge. I'm of Italian descent, and... I went to normal elementary school and high school in that neighborhood, and then I studied um, university at York. I went to the Schulich School of Business. Um, after that, yeah, after that, I guess I'm into adulthood, not really childhood. <laughs> what else should we talk about about childhood? I guess how it relates to my current business, which is kind of funny, is I've always been interested in shopping malls and my, with my mom like one of our like activities would be to like, go to a mall on a Saturday afternoon and what's really fascinating is how my consumer patterns have evolved from childhood until now so I would enjoy shopping malls simply from the perspective of a consumer and now that it's involved that has evolved to understanding supply chain when I shop so as mentioned before this when I like to my, my caffeinated preference is sustainably sourced coffee that same sentiment translates to fashion so i'd like my fashion to be sustainably sourced as well understanding who made it what conditions it were made in so i'd say it's pretty cool how my sentiment for shopping has evolved from childhood until now yeah and what did your what do your parents do as like an occupation so my mom is a real estate agent she previously worked at procter and gamble in marketing um so a lot of brand exposure there and my father is a contractor, does painting, has his own painting company. Mm, nice. Yeah. And so given that kind of colorful background, um, what did you want to be when you were 10? Yeah, so it is a very entrepreneurial background in the sense of um, contracting company and real estate agent currently. So it's in the household, it's a very liberal, free environment. People, honestly, my parents were very supportive and that they allowed me to do whatever I wanted so that's pretty great and even now their typical work days um, they're often working late into the night due to the nature of entrepreneurship 
but you can have lunch with whoever you want during the day, you know what I mean? So that kind of free culture was really encouraged. When I was 10, what did I want to be? I think, I'm, I'm thinking back to those school projects about, you know, those bristle boards you make about like what you want to be when you grow up. At one point, it was pharmacist. At another point, it was dentist. And then I realized I really didn't like sciences. Then it evolved to something in business as grade eight and high school kind of approach. And I was taught to think more critically and what is most practical. And I guess that's what led me into accounting. At, in high school, I'd say definitely in accounting field was my most desired uh, job. And then that's what I got into right after school. That evolved quickly into something entrepreneurial. But when I look back to those days when I was 10 and seeing the environment in the household and at school, I definitely saw something entrepreneurial. I didn't know exactly what, but I always liked, liked to create things, whether it wasn't only arts and crafts from a young child, but just creating little companies and ideas and getting people involved. So even when I went on exchange in school, I learned how to make macaroons because I was studying in France and decided to come back and that summer make a little macaroon company. So there was, there was hints of entrepreneurial entrepreneurship throughout my, I guess, childhood and studies. So okay. that's pretty cool. Yeah, no, uh, it's always funny seeing those kinds of, uh, I think, hidden... Uh, I don't know, silver linings or those threads that you can pull on. Exactly, um, the patterns that have kind of happened throughout the uh, span of yeah. life. Yeah, definitely. And it's pretty cool that your parents were, you know, had that even entrepreneurial juice themselves and they let you be very liberal with your career. And like, I, most people assume because of my background being Asian that <laughs> my parents wanted me to be a doctor or whatever. But they're very surprised when I tell them my parents actually told me not to be a doctor nor a lawyer because they thought I'd be miserable and they were talking about um, why did they just could not understand why parents would tell kids to become doctors or lawyers because they were really high-stressed and miserable jobs most of the time for exactly. most people. Um, and so that was very helpful in me picking my career. And like my dad's an entrepreneur himself, and oh, so wow. I would see his life of, yeah, he chooses his own hours, does whatever he wants, it's a one-man company. Exactly. Yeah. What and industry is that in? So he does um, supplement. He's a middleman for a supplement distribution from wow. Canada to South Korea. Cool. That's very niche and so, sp- yeah. so cool. Yeah, and his previous job was at a, when I grew up in South Korea and okay. I moved over to Hong Kong, so I lived in those two countries for a bit. And awesome. my dad's company then was a, was a giant um, supply and a cargo logistics company. And so I think there's a bit of that logistical nature that Definitely. tied into it. He doesn't admit that's the reason, but I think that there is a bit of that um, tie in there. But Love it. yeah, and so yeah, so you go to York, you go to study accounting um, yeah. after you get some critical thinking. And <laughs> uh, when I look at you know like your uh, public LinkedIn profile, you were at KPMG, you spent some time in audit. I'm gonna say you probably saw the light, and then you went to risk <laughs> risk consulting. Um, and yes. after that, you went over to. Um, Tanzania was at Kauli. Exactly, and yes. And you started like a non-for-profit after that yeah. called Fair Square. So you can see how the trajectory kind of changed. Yeah, so we have yeah. we have a weird inflection point and I, and I can see a bit of maybe even baby stepping where you go from audit and then you leave. So this is the first decision point to go to risk consulting. Was, it, was there anything particular about that? Good question. So I, 
I wanted I wasn't ready to completely leave KPMG at the time, but I knew that audit was not the place for me. I'd kind of stunted my growth in audit in terms of what I could have learned. Um, so I was looking around at the firm at other groups that seemed interesting. And back from my summer internship days, I did a small rotation in the forensic group, part of risk consulting. And I still had some contacts there, and I remember really liking it. So I reached back out to them and um, applied for a position when there was an opening and did an internal transfer to that group. So I guess the silver lining was that it wasn't audit anymore and that I was still in the firm, so I still had that security blanket, but I was doing something that I thought would be more interesting, which it definitely was. And then after about nine months in that group, I realized that I didn't want to pigeonhole myself into such a specific area in the firm either, so I was trying to look outside um, and what I wanted to do next. But the reality was that I was really burnt out from the previous three and a half years at KPMG and wanted a little bit of a completely different change of pace. So I had a friend that was just in Tanzania and she had sent me photos that she purchased purses and bags from that company Cowley um, when she was there. And she had mentioned to me, I'll never forget this day, she sent me like a WhatsApp message in November 2015. And she was like, hey Nat, you need to check out this company. Like I just bought these amazing bags. And by the way, they're looking for someone from North America to help them come over for a bit and help them run their business. She's like, I think it should be you. And immediately I was excited. There's something about intuition that you can't really explain or replicate. And the the feeling of intuition that I had that day was just like, I need to be there, I need to do this. So I took my friend Steph up on this offer and um, looked into the company, emailed them. She put me in touch with someone on their board. I had a couple Skype interviews with them, um, submitted my resume. And after some, I think it was, I think it was about like a month total of interviews and discussions, um, I was offered the managing director position there for a six month period. And I just went, I completely went. And my friend Steph was already come back to Toronto at that point, so I didn't know anybody there. Um, but I was just so ready for a drastic change from KPMG that I had to I had to take it. So I took a leave of absence, a sabbatical from from the firm, because naturally, still an accountant, you want to be a little bit risk averse. <laughs> and so I was like, okay, I'll take a sabbatical for six months, and I'll just deal with kind of defer my decision. So I went to Tanzania, hopped on a plane, didn't know anyone. My friend Steph put me in touch with two friends who she had went to Laurier with. And she's like, yeah, message them, live with them. They have an extra room. So we were chatting over email um, with her friends, Valerie and Lucas. Lucas, who you previously interviewed on Accounted For. Yes, I think he's episode 11 yes. um, right now. Yeah, Fantastic. So Steph put me in touch with them, and I'd never met them. I was chatting over email. I got off the plane and went to their place and they were my roommates for the next six months, which is pretty, pretty crazy. It ended up being the most phenomenal experience I could have ever imagined. And that really is what was the turning point in my career. Um, seeing the women make the purses by hand is what changed my interest for the supply chain of fashion. As I mentioned earlier, how my consumption changed from being a simple consumer to a mindful consumer was definitely um, spearheaded by noticing how things are actually made. So when I was at Cowley, I would see people make the purses with their hands. It was in a safe, clean, friendly environment, but a lot of places in developing countries that manufacture things are not. 
And so that was really important to me to see how they're made. And I wanted to be an advocate for that. So when I came back to Toronto, I wanted to make sure that the things that I was consuming um, did have a a sustainable supply chain. Okay. And Kali itself, so it's a purse-making company. And do they sell products to North American companies? Good question. So at the time, they only sold within Tanzania. So... An interesting thing that I learned about Tanzania and a lot of developing countries in general is that credit cards, they're so ubiquitous here in Toronto, North America. You can't imagine going somewhere and like not expecting them to take credit cards, but there's no payment processor, electronic payment processor in Tanzania. So PayPal operates in something like 150 countries. There's like only a handful of countries it doesn't operate in and Tanzania is one of them. So you can't even pay by PayPal. So there's extreme challenges that I was trying to overcome. So we got them into a few more boutiques and shops in Tanzania. Um, I personally brought over about 50 bags when I came back and sold them to friends and family, people who wanted to support my mission there. I also did a couple of pop-ups and markets to kind of spread the word for them, but no direct import-export relationship. Um, Honestly, it's still on the back of my mind that every time I see a store that might be a good fit for Cali bags, like I'll always pitch it. It'll like always just be part of me. But they mainly sell within, and there's other places in Kenya now that they sell too as well. But it's predominantly East Africa. Okay, and and then tourists who go there who'll bring them back. Gotcha. And is Tanzania? Do they use a lot of like phone credits as well in exchange for money? Is that a system there too? What do you mean by phone credits? So it, um, I've I've been learning that. There are a lot of countries in Africa, um, like for example, like I think it was Kenya, where they don't use credit cards and sometimes they can't even trust the financial system too well. And so um, they have these credits that they have on phones and they exchange credits as a way of okay, yeah. financial so, currency. Right. So they have something called M-Pesa, which is essentially that. I and I think that's the Tanzanian form of it. But yeah, it's, it's, it's still cash. However tool or medium to obtain it is through phone credits yes you're right but apparently when you bring that to the bank you can somehow connect it to your card and get extract the cash fascinating yeah it's pretty cool yeah it's It's all through sms yeah it's a whole new form of economy um and i I didn't know know about this but one of the previous podcast guests uh, he was in kenya when the government practically shut down and he was talking about the power of phone credits and how people are just like the banks shut down but people still transact just with each other by phone or it's crazy yeah and so what in Kali itself what were you doing there as a managing director so it would take two forms one form of people and one form of product so in terms of people I would ensure that the staff were in a safe working environment that thing they had what they needed um, kind of like an HR perspective it also took a, a learning role so I would um, I had something called like Fun Learn Fridays, which I implemented for them, which is cool because they still maintain it. But um, myself, along with one of the other English-speaking admin people, um, I would kind of lead these learning sessions, so business lessons, so things from like how to make a balance sheet to income statement, how you should record the materials that you buy, um, invoicing, all of these things that they wouldn't have been trained on, and then the admin would translate it to Swahili because um, out of the workers, only a small percentage of them spoke English. So I would kind of lead in English and I would write. And numbers are obviously um, a a language that everyone understands. So I would write and then the glory, the admin would 
translated to Swahili for the people who didn't understand English. So that was pretty cool because um, they got to learn things, and a lot of them aren't really educated past high school, if that. And so it was really fascinating to see them learn things that are directly related to their business. So that was the people side. And then on the product side, it was everything from quality assurance, so overseeing the bags to make sure they're being made to standard, and getting the product into new markets, new stores, um, so I'd go out pitching it to brands, cafes that had tourists, and telling them about the telling them about the product, um, expanding their social channels, so putting product on um, on their social social channels, editing the website, things like that. Yeah, like the the whole business experience. Exactly. Yeah, and I think yeah, when you hear about it in hindsight, it sounds like the kind of learning opportunity you definitely want, especially when you felt like you know you hit kind of a diminishing return point and KPMG. Exactly. But how, how did that uh, decision-making process go? Like you were there and this opportunity comes up, you, you want to listen to your gut and your intuition and I am a huge proponent of, I think people really should listen to their heart and making these decisions. Right. But how did that, um, the rational side of you fight with that? Yeah, that's a very good question. It was, it was definitely challenging at the beginning, more so just because it's a new environment and new languages and different culture. Things like The things that were most challenging to me were that I couldn't... Being used to Toronto, you're so free to go anywhere you want, anytime right. you want, but there's just cultural differences in Tanzanian developing countries. You can't really be out by yourself after 6 p.m. Oh. Um, so I need to make sure I walked home like while it was still light. And then if you go out for dinner, it's pretty unheard of to like go anywhere by yourself like so I went with Lucas and Valerie everywhere like we called the same taxi company if someone couldn't drive us um so thing like neighborhood cultural differences like that was like the most challenging to adjust to right um especially because if I wanted to do something for the business you only have limited hours to do it whereas here you're used to just going out to a store like anytime at night it doesn't you don't think about those things right yeah so that was one of the biggest challenges. Rationally speaking, um, I was fine. Like it was, I was just like a crazy period of my life where it didn't, it didn't need to be rational. It just needed to feel right, um, and which it did. Yeah, and I, um, and so and so, how did it go from the firm standpoint when you just go to them and say, "Hey, I want to leave with Athens. I'm going to go to Tanzania." Yeah, <laughs> good question. So I went to um, one of the senior managers that I trusted the most at the time, and she, um, she honestly was so supportive and I went to her first because I truly trusted her guidance and so I find whenever you're making important decisions you obviously seek the advice of the people around you um, and in the work environment of KPMG I thought about who I, whose guidance I seek the most so I went to one of the one of those senior managers um, first that I trusted and I wanted to tell her about this opportunity and naturally because I feel connected to her I knew what her response would be and she was extremely supportive and loved the idea and then we together came up with a plan to tell the partner um, because ultimately he had to make the decision Um, so I with the senior manager we kind of came up with a plan and deciding which partner to ask because there's a few partners we could decide from so it's always the one that you think could relate the most so I went to the one who had four children himself like around my age who probably have done the crazy thing at some point (laughs) and so I really try to use empathy when I'm making those decisions about who to ask important things to and I thought that this particular one would have the most empathy given his family relationship and so luckily um, that turned out to be a really wise decision because he had um, amazing things to say and I guess it, we were we were proposed with two options. Is either one I quit 
because I was ready to do that and give my like three weeks notice and go to Tanzania because um, this I actually gave them this conversation was like two months before I left so there's lots of time to figure it out um, so it's either I quit or from their point it just makes sense to do a leave of absence because at least there's some opportunity or hope that I would return um, and so I gave them the two options and they're happy to give uh, approval leave of absence so I guess the point there would be I was just so sure back to the intuition that I was ready for this opportunity um, and it's, it was, it wasn't I wouldn't call it an ultimatum but this is what that was my next step people quit the firm all the time to go to new jobs and for me this was my next project so I was ready to do that and give proper notice um, but the reason why I wanted the leave the leave absence was the same reasons again it's just that little extra security um, for when I came back um, so I was grateful that they saw the light on that on that solution yeah uh, definitely and I think that's actually uh, a path that a lot of people don't think about taking and I always still recommend it to all my friends in the big four where they want to try things out but they don't want to quit because they don't know which is true you you know you won't know until you try something and I always remind them that because when I was a uh, consulting until I took a leave of absence for about three months oh, as nice. well to just travel and do things right um, and I also have a friend who has a family business he wanted to kind of try out and so he got a one-year leave of absence Amazing. from the firm and so the firm is relatively open to that as long as you know you're not a poor performer or anything and you have a very great case and I exactly think being creative about whatever tools you have at your disposal I think can allow you to try more things and I completely agree yeah and so that's really cool and so you come you have your six months in Tanzania and why didn't you want to stay longer I know Lucas stayed longer uh he he intended yeah. for like three months but that turned into like two years right you didn't want so, to stay for two years you know what good point yeah I knew that it wouldn't be as long as that yeah. that's for sure I did miss Toronto and things about it although however much I really loved the experience I knew that it was time for me I did I did extend my trip a bit it was originally supposed to be four months um my leave was six months and I was planning four months in Tanzania and like two months I'll figure out when I get back but I ended up extending my Tanzania time to like five and a half months so I did my one extension and then that was kind of enough for me the position at Cali was only for like a six month opening and it wasn't a paid position and I was fine for that for six months uh, five or six months but after that um, it's time for me to just come home it's, again it goes back to intuition like I extended it there once but I'm a very big believer and I act heavily on my intuition and um, for me if at the time I wanted to stay longer I would have there was no external force it just was what I felt yeah and so you come back and you you know I think you were back at KPMG and you start this fair square not-for-profit um, how, how does that whole like timeline work? With, right, um, so yeah, the timeline's a bit interesting. So I yeah. actually didn't return to KPMG okay. at all. Um, I ended my employment when I came back, um, which was really scary. So after, when it was time to, when it was time to go back, like I said, I still had a little bit of um, a buffer, so I, I wanted to give proper notice. So I, I went in and first, again, I, I met with the same senior manager before and I told her straight up that I was thinking about resigning, that at the time my, my um, position for it was that I just had this phenomenal experience and I wanted to really capitalize on what I've learned there and kind of continue down that path. I'm at that point in my life um, where I was young enough and wanted to take the risks then and I felt that if I went back to the firm, I would get stuck on that corporate path when I was just fresh off this 
you know, sustainability um, fashion path, and that's what I wanted to explore. So I was very honest, and she completely understood and said the same thing that, you know, she has a family now, and you can only take these risks at certain points in your life, obviously, and to be calculated with them. And that if I felt it was the right time that she would support it, um, I still need to talk to the partner, but a resignation is a resignation. You just give proper notice, um, and you can hopefully leave on good terms. And so, again, I had to go have that big chat, which I was really nervous about because you never know how people are going to react. Like, they gave me this amazing opportunity for a leave and were expecting me to return, but there was no obligation to return. And so I needed to have that conversation with him again. So, again, same thing. I went to the same partner who um, was very understanding the first time. And was super nervous, had to book a meeting with him, um, and I could tell, like, he probably thought he knew it was coming, so I meet him in his office, and we just chat about my experience for a bit, and he was asking very, um, interested questions, he was very engaged, which was, which was great to see, wasn't just brushing it off, and so then I had to come to the hard decision and actually say the words that I won't be returning, which is always really hard to say in the moment, um, but I did it, and you know what, he was, he was honestly phenomenal in saying that, like, he wishes two things for me that one, I either return to KPMG someday and there'll always be an opportunity for me or two, that I return as a client when I'm like this entrepreneur. And, and you know what? That was like the nicest thing that I could have heard in that moment is that he still values the relationship and wants me to return to the KPMG family in some form. Um, so it was really great to know. Yeah, it's weird uh, when, when like, I try to give um, people perspective when they're afraid of that and I tell them, you know, like, five years from now the firm will still be there they'll still want you yeah, yeah the partner will still be there. like i still catch up with my old like kpmg mentors and you know they'll jokingly say it or sometimes it's serious so they'll say hey man you want to go back to audit yeah literally <laughs> it's always going to be there and yeah. that was my, that was the same thought process that i had as well yeah like and he reiterated that he's like if you ever want a job the door's open it's like so there's no reason not to leave yeah so practically the the downside is like oh, i'll get a you know bottom floor maybe like 70 70k paying senior account job yeah it's not yeah, bad at all exactly yeah. <laughs> okay and so you you quit and then is this when you go straight into borough so yeah happens? yeah good question so um that was about september october and then um the pivotal moment was when i attended a sustainability fashion conference in october so a few weeks after i quit um i had this i had the idea for borough and it was just about, you know, meeting people, getting it started to get it off the ground. So I attended this conference. It seemed like a good fit for where I was in my life. It was a two-day conference at Metro Toronto Convention Center um, put on by Fashion Takes Action. It's a nonprofit um, fashion sustainability organization in Toronto. And so I went there, and it was fantastic. Like, the speakers are everything from... Um, Value Village, to Holt Renfrew, to H&M, and they're talking about what those organizations are doing in terms of supply chain and sustainability. So I found it extremely fascinating, and everyone there was there to learn about how to make fashion more sustainable. So I loved it. And on day two, I met someone there um, who we just started chatting. We were sitting next to each other. And I told her, we just opened up about like our dreams and what we wanted to do, and I told her about my idea for Borrow, this rental marketplace. And um, it was, she was very receptive to it. She was great. And she, um, we didn't have much time to chat because it was time to go to like the next breakout room of the conference. And she, we exchanged contact info. And she's like, yeah, we should grab coffee. Um, so like later that week or the next week, we met up at a coffee shop. And she was telling me a bit more about how she remembered someone from her university at Western who had wrote in a um, Facebook group once, like their alumni group, about they're looking for people in fashion t- 
they have this idea to start a fashion rental marketplace. And she's like, yeah, this was just like last week. You should reach out to this person, Chris. Um, you guys have the same idea. And I was like, okay, great. Like, sounds good. And so then we continued chatting and kind of just let it go. And then so when she introduced me to Chris, we had all the three of us had met up the following week or a few weeks later. Um, and turns out, yeah, Chris does have the same idea. And Chris today is my co-founder of Boro. So it's pretty crazy how when you open up yourself to strangers and just share your ideas, you never know who they can connect you with. Um, the crazier part is that Chris and I have a ton of mutual connections. So his sister and I actually went to high school together. Whoa. And because our mutual friend just said his first name, not his last name, I didn't put it together at the time until we met and I realized what his last name was. It's like, oh, is your sister Nat? And he's like, yeah. Like, It was just a crazy small world and we have a bunch of other family connections. We both grew up in the same place in Woodbridge. Um, is Chris Italian too? Yes. Oh, wow. <laughs> so there was a bunch of connections that we had just never known each other, but we know a lot of uh, similar friends. So the trust was inherently established. And then from there, we um, we just started working on it and we launched it uh, the following March. Wow, that's that's a very fast uh, progression. And so then when you were initially quitting KPMG, you didn't have anything lined up. You were just... Nothing. You were still just kind of in the ideation An phase. An idea, exactly. And so how did that idea come by, though, this initial spark of rental marketplace? That's That's, that's got to be the one. Yeah, good question. So... I actually, on the, I remember the flight, I came back from Tanzania to Toronto. So I was having this exact internal debate where you just asked me with myself. It's like, what am I going to do? Like, I have a few great ideas, or I think that are great. And so I literally, on the plane, spent the first leg of the trip from Kilimanjaro to Amsterdam, writing out SWOT analyses of, like, my different ideas, and then literally analyzing them. And I was like, yeah, this is the one that I wanted. This is like most relevant right now. And this is the one I feel more passionate about. I came back and talked to a bunch of friends and family and people about just getting feedback on the idea, how it would be iterated, um, and decided that would be the one that I went with. That being said, it was just still an idea. Um, and going to the conference was like kind of like my first foray into that. Um, but yeah, it was very risky in the sense that it was literally an idea. Yeah, yeah. But it came from a lot of friends and family, too. Like, I would see people around me, similar to what you said about your girlfriend, that would always complain that they didn't want to wear the same thing again or that they had nothing to wear. But really, they had a whole closet full of clothes. And, again, on the demand side, friends would come to me or friends would go to each other to share clothing. It's very natural for women, especially if you have a sister. So I thought the habit's already there for women to share clothes. Um, why don't we try to make this a monetized community? Right, so you've already seen the problem is prevalently there, and so you've already kind of established a potential product market fit. Exactly. Inherently there. Exactly. Yeah, okay. And so you, you and Chris meet, and how does the hatching of the company not begin? Because you guys are both also non-technical. Right. And so you're, I think Chris is also business background right. as well. Yeah. And so how, what are the first three months like after you guys meet, and you guys decide, all right, okay. we're going we're yeah. to create a company called Burrow. Yeah. So the first three months, it was um, a lot of researching again going into delving into um more sophisticated research about what the solution will actually look like um will we centralize it will we decentralize it 
um, what's our FAQ going to look like? How are we going to deal with cleaning? How are we going to deal with all of these things if we do centralize it? So one of the biggest debates was like decentralized versus centralized. And what we ultimately decided was that if we let the people handle the transactions themselves, it's kind of just like a Kijiji to begin with. So it makes more sense for us to control it at the beginning because we can develop a brand. We can develop um, templates, how things are going to be done. And then eventually the long-term goal, which we're doing now a year and a half later, is decentralizing it. So once we've kind of developed the processes for things and we know how to deal with all of the FAQs, we can now simply translate that to other everyday people. Mm-hmm. So the first three months, we're yeah, developing like a lot of those processes, templates, how it's actually going to function, logistics, and then also accumulating inventory. So one interesting part of a marketplace is you can't really start until you have some supply. But in a marketplace, they, it's kind of chicken and egg. It's like, what comes first? People are like, oh, I really want to use your product because I have a gala, but we don't have any dresses yet on the site. So a marketplace, you can't really launch. We decided we wouldn't launch until we had 50 products, which is still very, very small. We're up to like over 650 now. But we started doing um, every Saturday or Sunday these photo shoots where we'd get friends and family to come out. We've ha- we'd have some food, champagne, like make it a fun event where people would bring their clothes and we'd photograph them in it. Um, and they'd have some snacks and it'd be a good time. And slowly we built our inventory over four weekends with that. So we were ready to launch the site. So we'd, it would literally be me photographing the items. We'd learn how to remove the white background and like make it e-commerce ready um, and just kind of hacked it. Wow. No, yeah. Wow, that's amazing. And so you just put it all together after four weekends. And how, how was the uh, quest to get the first customer? Oh my gosh, so funny enough, I'll never forget this day. It was, it was actually on our fourth weekend of collecting inventory that we um, got our first customer. Nice. By chance, I went to go get lunch down the street at Richmond and Spadina, and we were setting up for this event, and I just stepped out to grab a bite, and I noticed this group of really fashionable girls around my age at the corner, and I'm, I'm pretty introverted in the sense that I don't usually speak to people on the street, but I was like, you know what, like I need to, I'm launching a brand, like I need to be open to the world about it. So I told these girls, I was like, hey, like, you look really great, I love your style, um, I'm launching this brand called Boro, this is what we're doing, we're actually having an event, like if you want to come by for a snack and champagne, and they loved the idea, and they're like, yeah, like we'll come by right now, are you open? And we're like, we don't actually, we're not starting for another hour, but just come on by, we're already set up. So we kind of had this pre-event for this five group of girls, and they were looking through the small rack of inventory we'd collected from the previous three weekends, and one of them was like, I I need this jacket for this weekend, like I want to wear this tonight, and that was our first transaction, like literally off the street yeah nice. <laughs> and that that girl she kind of turned into a long-time customer she'll always rent jackets from us like outerwear is her thing so still to this day she's one of our great customers wow and she brought her friends so it started literally with like guerrilla marketing i guess on this corner of the street yeah and turned into word of mouth because then she told her friends yeah and so then right now do people you said it was like a centralized location so people come and then yeah. they drop what they rented off and then they can also pick and browse through what's out there exactly so it was very much a boutique we were there for one year it was at queen in soho and um it was an amazing space but what we discovered that it was becoming very much like a boutique so people would just think it was you know we had opening hours on google um people would just walk in when they wanted which is good but like we took a step back and made a very strategic decision is do we really want to be a rental boutique and the answer was no 
I don't want to be just a store that people want into. Our original vision was to kind of change how people consume fashion. Um, and we wanted to bring the world's clothing to people. Mm-hmm. And doing that through a boutique was supposed to be a very short-term experience. We originally had the space for one month as a pop-up. That turned into three months, six months, and eventually a year. Um, and we were just getting too comfortable there, and our customers were getting too comfortable. And it is a very scary decision to cut something off that appears to be working, um, but it was very much a strategic decision that online fit needs to be solved, and having a showroom is a very temporary solution. We want to get tech integrations. How do you virtually try things on? How do you make returns so easy that there's no barrier for people to order it, even if they're not sure if it doesn't fit? And that's what excited us more. So we took the scary step of um, giving our 30 days notice at the showroom and are in the process of decentralizing, so giving the items back to their home uh, owners. We have a storage in the meantime for things that we need to ship out that people may not want to handle themselves. Um, But it's very much going back to our original vision of a peer-to-peer marketplace and now taking the step of removing ourselves from the manual work and letting the community come together. Right, so if I wanted, hypothetically, if I wanted something, then I could just meet Joe down the corner and say, hey, I'm the guy, and then... Yeah, so right now it's not even to the point of... We're taking baby steps. It's not even meeting up. We're using still... um, centralized services so we use something called penguin pickup which is a fantastic fulfillment partner there's a dozen of them across the gta and they're basically staffed lockers um so we go to penguin pickup and we say hey like alana's picking this up next week um or the customer like the owner of the item will bring it there and alana can go pick it up at this establishment so people are it's still not kijiji style people still feel like it's a legitimate service um or we use mail Mail works as well if they're not in the GTA. Gotcha. And the business model itself, is um, is it similar to other marketplaces where you just take a fee off of the actual transaction that's happening? Exactly that. Gotcha. Okay. Nice. And, you know, there you even like mentioned about the kind of upfront cost that's associated with even having a storefront. You know, other marketplaces, yeah, like Airbnb, they don't own any homes. Um, exactly. Uber don't own any cars, but you actually own the storefront. And so that also, you know, Rent is expensive in right. Toronto. And I remember you mentioned how... <laughs> Sorry. No, no worries, no worries. <laughs> um, you mentioned how you guys aren't like venture-backed, uh, like venture-capital-backed, but no. I think Chris mentioned that you guys are funded through like, grants. A lot of grants, yeah. exactly. So how, how did that work, like getting the initial capital and you know bootstrapping your way through? Like Good that? questions. Yeah, it's important for startups to like, know about these things. So yeah, we started bootstrapping for sure. We each put an investment in, like a small personal investment each equally. And then that kind of just got us up and running. And then um, we learned about a few grants. So we're part of, we were part of Ryerson's fashion incubator. It's called Ryerson Fashion Zone. And I would recommend for any startups to see which incubators or accelerators in their area and in their industry suit their needs. Because a lot of the times government grants are only given to people who are part of established um, accelerators. So we were really lucky to be part of Ryerson Fashion Zone because they actually tell us about grants that are open, whereas we would have never known. And we're able to get a sizable amount in grants just simply by being on this email list. And we're only on this email list because we're part of this incubator. So number one, definitely get part of an incubator if you're a startup, um, because you'll learn about resources that you otherwise wouldn't have learned about. And two, you can't even get the grants unless you're part Mm. of 
and of an incubator. Are there costs associated with being part of um, that kind of incubator? Yes. So that's a good question. And that's, we're kind of at the point now. It's like, is it worth it for us anymore? Because we've kind of exhausted the government grants that are available to us. Um, it was $500 a month, but that included rent. So you could sit at their desks. Um, or it was at one point once we got our own office space, we just did the reduced incubator rate, which was two fifty a month, half of it with no rent. So it was literally just access to their grants. But um, from a cash flow perspective, it made complete sense because we are getting more grants per quarter than it cost us in rent per quarter. Um, so it was a very easy decision to continue. Mm-hmm. Can you share like around how much uh, grant money you can potentially like receive? Yeah, for sure. OCE is a public grant, so anyone can look at it. So it is public information. Um, we received around fifty thousand from just one, and then the rest of them from Ryerson because part of the incubator are like a few thousand each. Wow. Yeah. And so for someone like me running like a media company, can I get grants too? <laughs> <laughs> you know, so Ryerson. So if you're at the DMZ, I have digital yeah, media zone. Yeah. You should look into them because so yeah, Ryerson is fantastic. That's the only one I'm familiar with because that's the only one we've been a part of. Right. They have different industries. So there's fashion, biomedical, social venture, and digital media. Um, and whichever one that you're aligned with, your business is aligned with, you can apply. So there's an application process. You can't just join it. Um, but it's worth it. Once you join, if you are paying that fee, because you get desk space, <clears throat> excuse me, because you get desk space included as well. So I think it's completely worth it. I wow. can send you the links to them if you want. All right. Yeah. Maybe I'll actually be part of an incubator now. That, yeah. That'll be exciting. Um, realize my dreams of creating a media company. Yeah. <laughs> and then, so right now for you and Chris, um, are you guys paying yourself a salary? I guess about a year and a half. We're in. not. We're not. Mm-hmm. And so it's a very, it's a challenging point as a startup because living in a place like Toronto you need to live and uh, it's expensive to live rather um, so yeah we're lucky that I guess we've been we've been able to use other resources around us t- whether it's like living at home or staying somewhere where it's, you're able to walk to work so you're not including like, incurring a lot of additional expenses but at the same time like I'll speak for myself like you are eating into your savings in a way because there's no income coming in so yeah it's challenging for sure um but i guess like the entrepreneurial dream is that you try for a little more you try a little harder and you see what's not working and you pivot which is why we've now pivoted to this decentralized method is because it was far too manual before the work we were doing was far more than the percentage we received as a marketplace um so now we're taking steps so that at least it's a bit more a bit less manual um, and maybe there's other things that we can do to kind of supplement our income. Yeah, no, I totally agree. I, and, you know, you've been, you've been at this way longer than I have, but, you know, I'm I'm at month seven or eight of no income. And, you know, still, like you said, eating into my savings, doing all this stuff. Um, but I think even in the eight-month time period, there are these moments where I think there are like these phases where the first two, three months, it's like, yeah, all right, that's cool. And then I hit kind of month six, and then I start thinking about it more. And it, you know inherently that, yeah, it's no big deal. Um, but it kind of nags at you. Like, how, how did you deal with that? And when, when were your kind of points of, man, this is, this is pretty hard. This is challenging. Yeah, good, good observations there. I would completely agree that, like, months one and two, you're kind of just – for me, months one and two is just like a finally a break in the type of work I was doing compared to my last job at KPMG. So 
it served that purpose. It was like, okay, this is great. I'm working on something new and exciting. And then, like, approaching month six, I was still romanticized by the idea. I was like, this is fantastic. We're finally launching because the first few months we're just building. So then you get the high of the launch, right? And so I would say there's different highs that are associated with it, and that's what keeps you going. So whether it's, like, first building and then launching and then adapting. So it's like, um, what can we do to serve our customers better? So there's always something to look forward to, and I think that's the key. Um, I read this book, Man's Search for Meaning. It's oh. a really great book. Have you read it? Yeah, I, I have. It's a, it's a great book. Um, mine came at a very timely moment when um, my friend gave it to me as a part of a Secret Santa gift. Oh, nice. And like I had, we all have like a list, and so I got I got that book, and it also came when um, I was effectively going to be leaving uh, my hedge fund job, and so I'd be reading it uh, at nighttime, like while I'm in Calgary, I'm like yeah. It's time, yeah. It's, it's time, yeah. And so, cool. I don't know, Well, I'm curious to see what you took away from the book, but one thing I took away was that you always need to be looking forward to something. Mm. Um, and so I found that with entrepreneurship, as we were always looking forward to something, like always looking forward to the next pivot, the next launch, the next adaptation. So my search for meaning was effectively met, and salary just wasn't in my frame of mind until probably after year one i would say at some point after year shortly after year one i was like okay so it's been a year like and that's a milestone that you acknowledge right um these are the things we did great these are things we need to improve on um is there room for salary in this picture so start thinking about those things um but it didn't really bother me like i said because it was i was fine living on my savings from my previous job and the fact that I was always had that thing to look forward to, my search for meaning was met. However, now a year and a half in, almost two years since um, I left KPMG, because there was that break in between, it's it's becoming more prevalent that, okay, to live in this city and maintain, I need a salary. Right, yeah, and this, that's not even including the six months in Tanzania when Correct. you weren't getting paid either. Correct, so, uh, even longer. Yeah, yeah, even longer, um, but yeah, like. I, I guess context to some of the listeners who are not familiar with the book Man's Search for Meaning by Viktor Frankl. It's practically written by a psychiatrist who lived through the uh, Nazi concentration camps. So he's Jewish and he's gone to like four different concentration camps and Auschwitz was one of them and I think two other death camps as well. So he just writes about his experience and his meaning. It's a very short book and I highly recommend everyone read it. And my takeaway from that was one was... Um, how trivial my problems were. So like the, the difficulty or the struggle of, you know, man, you know, oh, I have this great job. I'm going to, you know, I have, I have all this great money and I'm not going to get it. Or, you know, what would people think of me right. um, for not, like, having this title anymore? And when you read that book, it just puts everything into perspective of, yeah, just, you know, stop bitching about it. Just, right. come on, man. Uh, this is not even a problem. And it's true. It, you know internally what is really right and what's not and I personally really enjoyed it because I when I was younger I thought about um, being like a psychologist or psychiatrist because I cool. like the reason I started the podcast is because I love talking to people and that was one of the drivers of oh I wanted to psychiatry because I love talking to people and hearing problems and maybe like advising people and it also that kind of directly helped me gain more meaning of yeah I still love talking to people so let's try something different and absolutely th- those are the kind of big takeaways for me and I know that's the book where I'll have to read two three four times throughout my life for sure just because I find these kind of classic books 
as you grow as a person, the meaning you pull out from them is always different. Um, right. Because I find these authors are much wiser than I am. So For sure. when when maybe when I read it, read it again at Victor Frankl's age, then I'll be like, oh man, yeah, totally. I never and then saw take this. Away. Exactly. Exactly. And so right now with Burrow, um, you're talking about oh, you know, there are there's some struggles of like the monetary side as well, but. Was there um, like a specific huge obstacle that you felt was like this is like a low point where you might have debated on and do we close this down or do we just really push on through? Good question. <laughs> um, it's it's challenging because it's so hard to know when it's your own baby, like what point, what direction to go in when you're at a juncture. And we're kind of at a juncture now because, as I mentioned, we're going through this decentralization process of making it the original vision of having people interact, um, not necessarily on the street, but with themselves, still through services such as Penguin Pickup, but it's not us manually fulfilling the order. And so it's been since September. So one big point of that was in August when we had to decide to actually leave the showroom. Like I said, it was actually a very big decision because... We spent a year there and a lot of our, we have so many customers coming in per week and it's like, how do we just cut this flow of customer uh, satisfaction and revenue? Because that's what essentially drove our business. Um, but again, that was a huge one because we could have chose to either stay at the showroom, which would have just been stagnant growth, but still growth. Um, it could have been leaving the showroom and shutting down the business because who wants to rent things without trying it on? But we tried to go forward with the third option, which was leave the showroom, do an online pivot, online-only pivot, and make it more creative for how people try things on. And so from a B2C perspective, which what the business is now, that's the only way that we saw that it would continue. Having the showroom um, wasn't a long-term solution. So we're going ahead with that B2C. The other junction point, Point that we're at is a B2B opportunity, which is also quite scalable. So we're working with a company now to implement a rental section on their website. So for companies that are already have distribution in place and already mail out packages, and they have a lot of idle inventory in their warehouse, why not implement a rental option if it's a high value item? And to us, that's a completely scalable solution because people are already doing mail outs and we wouldn't touch inventory. We just have a rental button on these products on their site. So that's something that's really exciting us right now. So I think the point is, is like seeing what the challenges are, um, analyzing the options, pros and cons of each. Again, I'm a huge believer in like SWOT analysis, like on my plane back from Tanzania, laying out like strengths ops of each, acting on it, always choosing to act because you'll have paralysis by analysis if you keep analyzing. It's not going to be perfect. Another big quote is done is better than perfect. Just choose one and go with it. Again, using intuition um, is very important. And then also just looking for new opportunities. So a year ago, we never would have thought of this B2B opportunity. But because um, it came from a problem from B2C, which was that people who want to try things on, well, if we do this from a business perspective, they may not already know this stuff from the brand. They already shop on their website. Maybe they want to try it before they buy it. Maybe they want... Maybe they don't want to buy it because it's expensive and they just want to wear it for that one week. Mm-hmm. So being more creative with the solution as well allows you to just... You have to think outside of the box and it's challenging. Um, but I think keep, keep keeping on pivoting. Um, you can never stop pivoting. Yeah, I, I think 
uh, the good quote for that is Jeff Bezos is where he talks about you want to be stubborn in your vision but flexible in your strategy. And yeah, I like that. Yeah, and it's true. And like, we've stuck to our vision. And yeah, that's a very good point about us leaving the showroom too. And it's just like we need to be stubborn with this vision of being creative of how people consume clothing, and it's not doing that through a traditional bricks and mortar. Mm-hmm. And so, how how has your wardrobe changed with uh, the creation of Pearl? Um, I, I was reading some of your interviews that you've done online, and you talked about how. For most people, um, they only use twenty percent of their wardrobe, and knowing yeah. that, have you that's a huge, remodeled it? Yeah, that's a it's a very staggering fact. When I first heard that, and I was analyzing it as well, and you know, I actually have probably purchased. I can count on one hand things I've purchased clothing wise um, since I've started Borrow. Nice, because I believe that as a leader of a company, you need to speak with action, um, and not only that, it's significantly impacted the way. I shop whether or not I started borrow like I said when I went to Tanzania viewing how people actually make things I didn't want to be part of I didn't want to contribute in any way to companies that aren't transparent with how things are made or if they're made in like poor factories things like that um, so my consumption has definitely been minimalized um, I often wear I, I don't like to think of it as like uniform I'm not as strict as that like having like this like five white shirts and like five black pants like you hear some some leaders do but I agree like I'll have I'll have like a few like my gray turtlenecks in the winter and like my black pants like I'm wearing now and like this black overcoat jacket that I'll pretty much always wear because it makes the outfit look different so even if I'm wearing like three different tops or the same top but I'm wearing this jacket on top like you could switch it up right so I'll, I'll be more creative with my additions outerwear um but the point is I'm definitely more minimal and more self-aware yeah. about what I'm consuming. More purposeful. More purposeful. Yeah. Absolutely. Have you read um, the Mari Kondo book of the art of tidy- the magical art of tidying up? That's on my list. I okay. have the book. It's at my parents' house. My mom has it, and I do need to read that. Yeah. Have I, you read it? I haven't read it, but I've watched numerous interviews um, by the author, and I, I'm personally more... Um, I am of a more of like a I'm trying to be more stoic in my life and so I'm a very big uh, advocate of the stoic way of philosophy and so that results in having kind of a very Spartan-like wardrobe as well so I've had a big calling of my own things and I'm naturally a person um, that doesn't mind a lot of repetition in a lot of areas like I'm very curious in other ones like that's why I did hedge funds and stuff because I love learning constantly of different things but at the same time clothing wise I have six v-necks and I, it's three yeah. white v-necks two navy and one maroon for that special day <laughs> and so I just rotate through yeah. that and I have four pair of pants and so like, I have clothes that are like, a, like the same t-shirt I'll still wear for like, like six years yeah no I wear my clothes for a long time too like I've stopped with the whole disposable clothing thing yeah. Like some people used to say, you know, oh, it's only 20 bucks, this t-shirt, I'll just buy it and then like get rid of it next month and buy a new one. But I'd rather invest in like a quality piece that will last multiple years. Exactly. Like, um, I totally agree with that where it's just, a, you know, one time all purpose clothing or, um, you know, one thing for winter, one thing for fall. Right. And yeah, I just rotate through it that way. And I found that, you know, it also alleviates a lot of the decision making of just staring at my wardrobe and saying, "What should I wear today?" Instead, of, now it's just, "All right, this shirt and this pants. It's always exactly. gonna match." Um, exactly. That might also be the fact that I 
growing up, I've worn a uniform all my life. So elementary, high school, I've always worn a uniform. So I'm very used to that. Right. <laughs> For uh, sure. But yeah. It, no, I, I agree. Um, sometimes I'll get the thought in my mind. It's like, oh, I've worn this gray sweater for like two days now like I should change it up but I I completely agree that it just makes decision making so much easier like you don't want to think about that in the morning yeah and I think kind of ties back to the Viktor Frankl thing of um you know your problems are very trivial but at the same time it also kind of means I also take another takeaway is that I'm not as special as I think I am there's that I think a lot of people have that internal narcissism of it, it happens to people I think who are humble where you think like people are very self-conscious of people are going to notice I'm wearing some, the same thing twice. Yeah. And I, I not I'm not trying to be negative, but I'll try to like when my girlfriend says I'll bring it up and say you know that's a bit of narcissism there. Like it's a different kind of narcissism where you actually think people care so much to notice you. Right. And because I do that too sometimes, and but now I'll like I'll wear the exact thing four days straight. Even though it could actually technically be a different T-shirt, right? <laughs> but um, from perception, yeah. it looks the same, yeah. And I just assume like, yeah, people probably won't notice anyways, right? Yeah, yeah. And I think getting comfort over that might actually also help with um, the mindset of even consumption too. That's very true. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> and so for you, as what's your day like as a you know as CEO of a startup? What's your day like today? Okay, so. Um, and it changes day to day, so which is why right. something like Flex Day, which we'll get into, is a phenomenal yeah. working space. So um, my day will usually start off, I'm not like a very early morning person, um, usually. I'll usually wake up around 7.30. Um, I'll have a coffee at home in the morning, or if I'm heading out, I'll always like to bring a reusable coffee mug, again, back to sustainability. I don't want to be contributing with all the plastic and cardboard. So um, then I'll head to like a flex day location. So I'll look on the app. And this has changed in the past two months because before we had the office, so I would just head to that office space. But I'll look at my calendar and see where I, or the night before, I'll usually look at my calendar, see where I need to be in the general area of Toronto that day and book a flex day location um, in that area. So what's really great, it's funny to be in, Leslieville one day I'll look at the locations out there and kind of plan my day around that or sometimes my day is split like I'm starting on the east end in the morning and uh, southwest end in the afternoon so I'll plan my day around those flex days Um, so it's really great you can plan like a workspace around where you need to be Um, I'll head to the workspace I'll I'll usually plan a list of what I need to do before that Um, I think we talked about this last time. What I've recently started doing is setting a today goal, a 30-day goal, and a 90-day goal and writing it out pen to paper, which is something I didn't do for a while, but I started about two months ago and I found that it has profound effects on my day. So I'll start by saying, like, today, um, what I want to accomplish is high level. 30 days, what is my goal? 90 days, what is my goal? And day to day, it can change. Like, my 30-day goal yesterday and my 30-day goal today may not be the same. It's just what comes to my mind first thing in the morning. And that kind of sets the tone for the day. Um, and kind of inspiration in a way. It's like, okay, if I, will, if I want this to happen in 30 days, this is what I need to do today, right? Um, so I'll start with that. And then I'll expand on the today into ter- in terms of actual things I need to do, such as um, upload three products, um, check on the status at Penguin Pickup on these orders for this week. So it'll be very like task-oriented goals as well. And I'll just work through those. Um, 
I've also played with this idea called task batching. Have you heard of it? Yeah, it's. I think the concept I am very yeah, familiar with. I'm not the greatest at it because I am. I like. I naturally like to multitask. Although I'm no, I'm not a good multitasker. No one really is. Um, so I'm playing with this idea of task batching. It's very challenging for me, but um, I see the benefits of it. So I'll literally block off, like let's say, ten to twelve to literally answer um, questions um, that my intern has. Because I know that if I just do it as she asks it, I'll just de- I'll get derailed. So it's like, okay, I'm gonna answer this tomorrow morning and I'll literally block the time in my calendar to do that. I find that to be very effective for me because I'm the type of person, if it's not in my calendar, it doesn't happen. Um, so I'll block specific task times to do these things. Emails, if, it's, if I can answer something in under five minutes, like it's just a quick response, I'll do it immediately. If it takes some thought, crafting, and investigating, I'll block time for that as well. And it might be tomorrow. Um, I will also try to break for lunch. That's something I'm not good at. That KPMG really kind of negatively imprinted in my brain is eating at the uh, eating at the computer. How do you feel about that? Um, yeah, I, I really do think taking time off to... You know, unwind and eat is really important. You know, I I say it, but every single job I've had, I haven't done right. that. And I think I think it depends. Um, I think the disconnection has to be like it, it's not necessarily being away from the computer, but it has to be a disconnection from work. So I've been getting more diligent tonight. So I might be at the office, but I'll just be reading. Right. Um, and eating while I'm reading. No, and that's or, important. Which it's yeah. something I'm trying to work on. Not good at it yet. It's hard. Yeah. <laughs> Especially when you love what you do. Yeah, exactly. And so then um, the afternoon might look like something like sometimes for the orders that we're still centralizing, I'll have to go to the dry cleaner to like pick it up, right? And then bring it to the penguin pickup, pack it in our box, write a little note. So it's still a lot of manual things like that. Um, fulfilling orders for e-commerce, it's pretty much expected until you have staff to do it. Um, so that usually takes longer because you're either commuting there by we use uber lyft um if it's within the city and i'm carrying a lot of things or by transit which takes pretty much 20 minutes anywhere you're going so there and back so that usually takes a few hours if i need to do a fulfillment day um and then in the evening there's usually an event of some sorts at least a few times a week like last night we were at brain station my co-founder chris was on the panel or other times um like at the fashion exaction conference that i mentioned um, I spoke on there a few weeks ago, and plus they're always throwing different events that are relevant to our industry. So seeing what's on the agenda for that week in a 6 to 8 p.m. period usually consists of some sort of event. Um, so it's definitely not a clock out at 5. And then, again, in the evening, there's always, like, social media DMs that people are asking you questions about, um, texts. Like, I literally it used to be my little cell phone number on Google for a year and a half. I finally just took it off because it was getting a little overwhelming. And so I still get texts and calls about, you know, things that we need to answer. So it never really shuts off. Um, I'll try to do a yoga class or some meditation at night. And um, read a book. What else? It really depends, like, night to night on what's happening and what the calendar looks like. Yeah, I think the struggle I've been having lately with my own venture is just trying to stop working, I think is hard. Absolutely. It's the hardest thing. Yeah. Don't. 
yeah, you, you just don't. don't want to. And then my girlfriend complains, you know, where are the weekends? Yeah. And I tell if I but if I play on weekends, that means I lose a whole day of doing stuff to right. really grow further. Right. Um, and so, yeah, I think balance, sorry, not balance, but I think a better harmonized integration of your work and life is very important. And But at the same time, I, I don't think it's bad to really be so engrossed in it if you're really loving what you're doing and that's what really life is and so I, I think agree it's always come, it's going to be an ebb and flows anyways 100% I truly believe that there are chapters for it um, that being said if you can't shut it off on the weekend it's like be your point about balance I, I believe balance is like an elusive concept it doesn't really exist but to your point about ebbs and flows it comes in different ebbs and flows if you don't have a podcast this week or like um, we have like a little bit of extra time it's like okay you can take that extra lunch with a friend and that's the beauty of being in control of your own calendar. The balance comes in different forms. It's not a classic like nine to five and shut off, but it's like, okay, even though I'm working until midnight and I can't really shut off on the weekend, I can take this lunch or I can take this midday yoga class. Um, so I think that's really special. Yeah, like I, I, nowadays I, I've been telling people more about, you know, forget work-life balance. It's actually about work-life harmony. And I wrote an essay on this piece about certain things require intense investment of time, like building a company. Whereas certain things require continued investment in time, like relationships. You can't just spend, you know, mom, I'm only going to spend 48 hours with you this week. And, and then never again for like the next six months, yeah. Exactly. you got to spend, you know, like an hour a week with your mom like, right. or even longer. That'd be ideal. Yeah. But, you know, that's the point of some things require more maintenance, like right. training at the gym requires continued maintenance. Whereas some things just require intensity, like building a business where it'll be ebb and flowy. Right. Um, that's a great way to look at it yeah <laughs> I, and as a comment of when you mentioned about like the eating part um, I think something I've been recently doing thanks to Flex, Flex Day has been because I'm a very big uh, believer in environment construction of like you know not working at bed bed is where yeah. you want to go to sleep and working at this desk here that we're doing the interview on Flex Day has allowed me to actually say you know train my mind to do go to workplace work there and when it's time to eat I actually walk home nice to, yeah if they're yeah. close enough, exactly. exactly. And so that also saves costs. And yeah. I'm, I'm very diligent with my meal planning as well. So get good nutrition. And that is a way for me to really just relax my mind until I go back out again to do more work. Um, I agree. So I think that's something that's I've a been great point. doing with. And I, I do like batching. Um, what I've been doing, it, and it's like a process in development, is right now I have a Monday, Tuesday, and a Friday batch session. So Fridays are podcast uh, podcast days. So Amazing. Usually I record Wednesday, Thursdays, and then on Fridays I just batch edit all my yeah. podcasts. Um, same for emails. I'll, I respond to emails Mondays and Fridays. So every time I get an email, if it's not like a five-minute reply, yeah. I slot it into a follow-up folder, and then I just batch reply all of them on Fridays or Mondays. Cool. That's a good tip. Yeah. So, yeah, you could potentially implement that. Um, Very cool. With you. But, yeah, it's like we're kind, kind of running out to the later ending parts of the interview um kind of closing questions i wanted to ask you is um what's uh what's like a big surprise that you had with your current like entrepreneurial journey something you didn't expect um where the reality just was not was just so different from the expectation very good question it's a tough it's a very tough question but i've recently meditated about this and tried to get to the bottom of it too and I I think that one of the realities that isn't true is that um, it's really tough to change consumer patterns 
people are very used to, because naturally we're a fashion marketplace, I'm talking about that industry specifically, I find that the big brands, the fast fashion brands are on everyone's walk home to work and from work. They can get things for cheap and not enough people care about um, the quality of clothes or how they're made. So unfortunately for 20 bucks, they can get like a new outfit. Um, and as much as I thought we could change that, it's very difficult to change that. Mm. So education is one piece, letting people know how these companies they're buying from aren't actually good. But it's another thing for them to actually change their actions around it. It's very difficult to do. So working on it. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I can relate in that. Um, I might have told you about like the kind of the coaching program I was running. Where, yeah, yeah, it it takes time, and like I I do a lot of kind of counseling with my friends and like their career stuff as well. And like I'll just try to constantly beat beat this kind of mindset into the head, but it takes a long time. Sometimes I'll have like a friend come back after two years, and it just kind of hit hit him. Um, out of nowhere and so yeah I think you just have to let my learning was that you just have to let people come to that realization themselves and you just try to repeat it as many times as you can right yeah it's true yeah you can't change anyone's patterns yeah I, I haven't found at least I haven't found a solution a yeah. better solution for it it's just been constantly just preaching what I do and eventually they'll come around to it or it's not going to change or maybe way later right i think people have the, the cycle of the early adopter and the laggards and all that um and so you know if we were to take a look back at the 20 year old natalie in york um i guess 20 year olds old you'd be in like third year if she were to look at you right now what you're doing where you're at what do you think her emotional reaction would be excitement and pride and I've thought about this too it's like sometimes there's this other good quote that I've read that really resonated with me it's like last year or to your question eight years ago your last year self wanted what you have now and like I found that to be really cool because like I've been working towards this entrepreneurship goal for so long and even before I knew it was an idea just the concept of being in control of what you're building and of your calendar was always really exciting to me Um, and I think that sometimes we get caught up in the day-to-day and like the challenges and it's like oh this isn't working like what should I do next that we forget that like a few years ago we really wanted to be where we are Um, so it's that gratitude so I think yeah I think I am excited about the path I'm on and the past self of me would be excited to see where I am now and proud of where I am now it's just hard day-to-day because you gotta keep building, yeah, to keep that emotional reaction maintained. No, definitely. And it when I looked online, um, as you mentioned before, you had done multiple interviews before, and yeah, it's very apparent that you know you are somewhat of a beacon of hum- a female entrepreneurship. Um, there's a lot of female entrepreneur-focused blogs that yeah. have interviewed you. And if you could give advice to the twenty-year-old Natalie or even a friend, um, what kind of advice would you give? Even you know who we are now yeah great I love that question I would say just try it and just do it it doesn't need to, it's not going to be perfect it doesn't need to be perfect whatever idea you're thinking of um or whatever path that you think you want to try what even if it's as simple as like a travel decision or if it's as grand as a major life decision such as job or where to live I think that if 
if something inside of you is excited enough that you keep thinking about it, it means that there's opportunity for you to do it. And again, that's your intuition speaking. Um, like if you if you think if you think about it a lot, I think it's a sign that you should be doing it. And so my advice would be just do it. And don't worry if it's not perfect, nothing is. And don't worry about what people are thinking because everyone's gonna have an opinion. Um, but you can't not do something just because someone tells you the risks of it. 100%, 100%. Yeah, that's a great advice. And so how can people, um, you know, buy and borrow? Um, Do you want to talk about your site? Yeah. People can use? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So you can find us online. Um, The domain is borrowit.ca, B-O-R-O-I-T.ca. We're on Instagram at borrow underscore it, again, B-O-R-O. Um, so yeah, we're there. The links to everything are there. Um, if you have any questions, send us a message and we'll answer it. All right. Great. Thanks for coming on the podcast, Natalie. Of course. Thanks, Dan. Thanks for having me. It's great. Yeah. Excellent. So thanks for listening to the podcast. If you enjoyed what you heard, please check out other episodes and don't forget to subscribe to stay up to date for the future episodes. Also, I would really appreciate it if you would leave a review on iTunes, Google Play, or Stitcher, whichever is applicable to you. To see past episodes, you can go to oldmandan.com slash podcasts. Also, you can sign up to my weekly newsletter on my blog, oldmandan.com slash newsletter. You can stay up to date with future podcast episodes that way, and included in the newsletter are my book reviews I write, my weekly article in the related to the domain of self-development systems, as well as seven things I learned throughout the week on being healthy, wealthy, and wise. Finally, special thanks to icons8.com for allowing me to use their music, Tiny People, on the podcast. Great. I will see you all next time. Take care.